I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. This week, I traveled to San Diego to interview Dr. Eric Topol. Eric is a cardiologist, geneticist, digital medicine researcher, and author. He is currently director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla, California. Dr. Topol is at the leading edge of thinking about the intersection of technology and science and medicine. I was especially excited to talk to him about where he thinks healthcare is and where he thinks it's going. I also wanted to discuss how technology might enable positive changes, might save healthcare, or how it might harm it. Eric has used his own personal best-known methods since his early life and career, making bold decisions that may have felt risky at the time. He navigated several important career transitions to arrive where he is today, which is arguably one of the most influential physicians in the world. In fact, he is consistently ranked among the top 50 most influential physician executives on Modern Healthcare's annual list. During our conversation, we chatted about a common mentor we shared at UCSF, Dr. Kanu Chatterjee, the ultimate doctor's doctor, and someone who had a huge impact on both of our lives. We discussed evidence and a theme that comes up a lot on Best Known Method, the randomized clinical trial. We covered nutrition, as we also occasionally do on this show, and how what we know about nutrition is, well, not a lot, and how much nutrition dogma is misguided. And then we got into the subject of his latest book, Deep Medicine, about machine learning, artificial intelligence, as applied to healthcare. And at the end, we touched on behavior change and how technology might help solve what Eric thinks is the biggest problem in modern healthcare, namely, a lack of time. As you will hear, I have known Dr. Topol for quite a while. He also worked with my dad, Dr. James Weiss, also a cardiologist, as a cardiology fellow while at Johns Hopkins. But more on that later. I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with him for what turned out to be an extremely thought-provoking and wide-ranging conversation. The kind of conversation one has with interesting people like Dr. Eric Topol. I hope you will agree. Uh, I was born in Queens, raised there as a child. Uh, We subsequently moved out to Long Island um, and kind of went through school pretty quickly started college when I was 16 and I was down at University of Virginia uh, I love the place and um, went from college where actually I started in genetics that was what I was really into uh, and I created my own major uh, I wrote a thesis on prospects f- uh, for gene therapy in man that was uh, in 75. And then I, um, somewhere along the way, I decided I'd go into medicine because I had to make uh, ends meet. And I worked in a hospital, University of Virginia Hospital, as a respiratory technician. I saw these patients on uh, intensive care unit that were on ventilators, uh, primitive equipment compared to today. But I saw some of them really resurrected. So I decided rather than stay in genetics, I would go for a career in medicine. So that's how I wound up in the field. And then you you and I did things mirror images of each other. So you went from there to San Francisco for your your residency. 
Yeah, that was the most fun of all the ECSF years. What was that experience like back then? Well, uh, it was wild because um, the uh, there was so much going on in medicine. It was the beginning of HIV, uh, and uh, it was also for cardiology, which I never, I didn't go out there to do cardiology, but it was actually pretty uh, enthralling because there are so many things that were happening, like the first angioplasty of coronary artery, the first use of uh, clot-solving agents for heart attack, the first use of uh, intraortic balloon counterprints pulsation, and the use of uh, mapping for uh, arrhythmias and uh, basically plugging in a person's heart to the electrical socket Mm -hmm. to uh, define routes of... uh, ways to interrupt uh, arrhythmias. It was it was amazing. I don't know if there's ever been a time in medicine that's been just a few years was so concentrated in jumps going forward. So I, I got hooked and it was, you know, really kind of Chatterjee that encouraged me. You know, I had gone out there to become an endocrinologist. Um that's one of the reasons why I really liked UCSF and I never I never got into that because the cardiology just was uh, so alluring. We could probably spend hours talking about Kanu Chatterjee, who I think is near and dear to anybody who ever encountered him. Um, but tell me, tell me a story or two about him and your experience with with him. Well, there's so much there, but uh, one of the things that I don't think many people who didn't know him uh, would understand is he's such a humanist. When he lost a patient, uh, he would cry, and uh, he found it very difficult because. He had superhuman powers of not only diagnosis, but in trying everything he could, communication, whatever it took to help a patient. So while so many of us were blown away by what he could do at the bedside in terms of saying that the pressure in this chamber is that, or don't you hear this, whatever, the thing that really got me was how he connected to other people. Um, patients, residents, fellow students, other doctors. I mean, it was just a model. Anyway, uh, he had more impact on me than any um, any mentor uh, throughout my whole career. Yeah, I think I, I, you're not going to be the only one to say that. And I, and I run the risk of offending a lot of people, including my own dad, who uh, have mentored me throughout my career. But but I agree with you. It's, I mean, there wasn't even a close second. So from UCSF, you made the trip to Baltimore, and I, I don't have a hard copy with me, but I was looking through your CV, uh, and I found a couple of papers that you wrote when you were a fellow, cardiology fellow at Hopkins. Right. And one of them had you as the first author, and it had this other fellow, James L. Weiss, as the as second author. <laughs> so you had the fortune or misfortune, I guess, of interacting with my dad back as a as a fellow at, at Hopkins in the early 1980s. And, and, and I'll say... Talk about an amazing time to be coming of age in medicine and cardiology. What, what was that? You had Bernadine and, uh, you know, just Mike Weisfeld, just an incredible group of people who who you were interacting with on a daily basis back there. What was that like? That was great. Uh, but it was a you know, somewhat of a tough atmosphere. Um, it was very different than the, the feeling of uh, work at UCSF. It was... 
tighter East Coast sort of thing. And I wanted to move faster. And I'll never forget the interaction I had with your father because I loved Echo um, and uh, I did uh, intraoperative Echo with the transesophageal. It, it was it was something I learned at UCSF and I actually imported it to Hopkins because at the time when I arrived there, they hadn't used it. And so I convinced your father to order a diastonics probe esophageal probe and of course the place for that was in the operating room so as a fellow my american heart association fellowship was based on this project of going in the operating room so i did that in a whole bunch of patients and uh we saw parts of the heart that were akinetic that i mean didn't move on after bypass they were acting normal at an age when many others would not have had the courage Eric followed his instincts and identified a leading-edge technology and then convinced his older colleague, who coincidentally happened to be my dad, that it would enable great research. And it did. A brief aside here about my dad since he came up. I've mentioned it before, but my dad is also a cardiologist and has been on the faculty at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, where I grew up, since the mid-1970s. In addition to seeing patients, he had an active research program in imaging the heart and was also the director of the Cardiology Fellowship Training Program, among other things. And it was in this capacity that he worked with a young Eric Topol on several research programs. Eric and my dad had been doing a project using what was then a new technology called echocardiography. This is cardiac ultrasound. It uses sound waves to take images of the heart while it's beating. And while it's now ubiquitous and performed every day in just about every hospital in the world, at that time it was new. And its use was teaching Eric and my dad and the world about how the heart was behaving after heart attacks. What they discovered using this new technology was that parts of the dead heart muscle in patients with heart attacks reawoke after the patients underwent bypass surgery. This was called hibernating myocardium, literally hearts coming back from the dead. It was groundbreaking. As a resident at UCSF, Eric had used an even newer technology called transesophageal echo, or TEE. This was performed in the operating room because patients had to swallow the probe, and to do so they had to be asleep. It was in their esophagus. When Eric got to Hopkins as a cardiology fellow, a few years later, he convinced my dad to purchase one of these probes. Think about it. A young trainee convinced a more senior colleague to purchase and adopt a very expensive new technology. And that risk paid off for both of them. Additionally, in his request to move faster, when Eric wasn't able to convince his senior colleague, my dad, to edit a draft of his research paper and agree to submit it for publication, or at least not on his schedule, he adopted a best-known method for that as well. I wanted to write up this paper, and I did write up this paper um, about the regions of the heart coming back to life. It was really in retrospect, one of the earlier demonstrations of hibernating muscle in real patients. And I wrote it up, and it was classic because, you know, I hadn't written many papers, uh, certainly not one of original research, and maybe it had, I don't know, 20 or 30 patients in it with all their regions of their heart analyzed, so it had a lot of data. And I had like 250 references, and it was an original research paper. And I gave it to your father, so I want to submit this to a journal. And he didn't get it back to me. And I decided that after waiting for X number of time, I would just submit it. So I did. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was rejected uh, by circulation. So then I sent it to JCC and it was accepted. And then, you know, your father was really upset with me because he hadn't done, you know, he hadn't, he saw the response that was accepted, but he hadn't really put much into the, finally he did. And it turned out to be, I think, a very nice paper. But I was very um, interested in, you know, kind of moving things and I couldn't get in sync uh, at times. Uh, and ultimately, I, I went off early. I left the fellowship early to learn to do angioplasty. I went back out to San Francisco, actually. So it was part of kind of uh, not uh, as ideal uh, experience as I'd hoped because, for example, I would have preferred, I just had our second baby born, I would have preferred to stay in Baltimore to learn angioplasty, but there was a long queue of others. And I was, you know, way behind, so I couldn't do that. So I, I was forced to separate from my family to learn a um, procedure that I was interested in. Eric identified that while he learned a lot at Hopkins, he was ready to move on, and he made the decision to leave Baltimore, but also to leave his family, to go learn a new skill that defined the first part of his career, made his career. He decided to move back to San Francisco to learn another leading-edge technology called angioplasty. Not too many years before Eric went back to San Francisco, cardiologists had figured out that most heart attacks occurred as the result of blood clots forming on the inside of an artery in an area that had been diseased and injured. This caused blood flow to stop beyond this clot and the muscle normally served beyond it to die. They also figured out that they could restore blood flow and stop the heart attack and eventually save lives by inserting a small balloon through a small tube called a catheter, and then blowing up the balloon at the site of the clot. This is angioplasty. Angio is the Greek word for blood vessel, and the plasty is the balloon smashing the clot and the plaque in the artery and reestablishing blood flow. This new technology was about to revolutionize cardiology, and due to bold and spectacular decision-making, Eric would be a part of it. And so from there, did you go straight to Cleveland? Well, no, I had three jobs in my life. Um, the first was at University of Michigan, and I was there for seven years. So I, I went uh, to work in the cath lab uh, as my primary appointment. And I stayed on seven years, ultimately running the cath lab and the intervention program. And then I went to Cleveland, be chair, chairman there for 14 years. But I took on other things like starting a new med school and then overseeing all the academics for the place. And then now 12 and a half years uh, at Scripps, Scripps Research now. And people can't see this here, but I'm looking out of Eric's office, which has a 270-degree view of the Pacific Ocean and Torrey Pines Golf Course. It's really beautiful. I can see the uh, the draw. So you got into interventional cardiology at the right time. Right. And you probably left it at the right time. So wh- when did you stop doing interventions? Well, I was doing them uh, a lot in Michigan, of course, because I had just gotten trained for that. So uh, all those seven years, and then almost all the years at Cleveland Clinic, uh, right through 2004. So it was almost 20 years worth of doing interventions where I I had a pretty reasonable volume, uh, much more at Michigan than when at Cleveland because I had a lot of administrative responsibilities, but I loved doing it. Depending on how you look at it, Eric's career was either brilliantly engineered or a random assortment of fortunate circumstances. But remember, this is a kid who entered college at 16 and wrote his thesis on using gene therapy in humans in 1975. He was always looking ahead, but not in some fantastic and science fiction-y kind of way. He appeared to be able to see the next step, 
or maybe the one ahead of the next one. More importantly, he always put himself in the best position to acquire the skills and tools he thought he would need to do the work he wanted to do. And he did so with bold and courageous decisions that were not easy to pull off and came with risk and sometimes personal sacrifices, such as leaving his young family behind. Eric had a spectacular career as an interventional cardiologist and then went on to Cleveland, where he rose through the academic ranks and eventually started a medical school called the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. And 15 years ago, he came to San Diego to build a new institute and became fascinated with technology and how it might impact medicine, healthcare, and science in good ways and bad. Well, you've you've done an enormous amount since you've had multiple careers over the past, um, well, even just the past 15 years since you've been, you've been here. How would you describe your current mission? Well, it's funny you mention it, but I've never had so much fun because it's a free space for innovation. Uh, and I think there's just no shortage of opportunities. Uh, I'd like to think, you know, to be a force of changing medicine and to breed and foster all that with the group of people I get to work with here, which is a real privilege. So uh, I think that there's so much to be done. Lately, a lot of my thinking has been, you know, really with AI and deep learning and all these tools that I believe is the singular most important opportunity we're going to have for generations to fix or provide remedies for many of the problems we face today. And I, in all the years, you know, the 40 years since I finished med school, I've never seen anything that had this uh, equal potential. We're going to talk a lot of, a lot about that. And I just finished listening to your book. I, I think I lost the ability to read a book. Um, <laughs> a lot of people have, apparently. It's amazing. I, I can't, I'm not sure if it's just this uh, constant drip of, of, information that comes at us in all these different ways, but I, I can't sit down to read a book. So I, I listen to books now and I just finished yours and we'll get into that. I want to tell you a little bit, I don't think I introduced you exactly what we're doing with this podcast. So I want to tell you a little bit about that and then get your thoughts about some specific things. So um, I think cardiology was probably the the leader of this movement. I think it's become a movement of what what's now called evidence-based medicine. I think cardiologists, you described this this paper that you published in Jack in 1984 that had 20, pa- 20 people and it's probably not randomized and no. old-fashioned right. medicine, physiology. But but those days uh, went away with the advent of probably thrombolysis and other things and cardiology became the epicenter of people who did these big, large, randomized controlled trials. And I think there have been a lot of benefits that have come from that. It helps guide our decision-making thought process. But but I think the other problem is that we now, those of us who were raised on this in this world, maybe have a harder time making decisions when the level of evidence is not as, as strong. And so I think uh, so we're, we're calling the podcast Best Known Method. And, and the purpose is to, to sit down with people like you and discuss how you approach making decisions, whether it's a clinical decision for a patient or it's a decision for you as a person or family member, how you approach making these kinds of decisions when the evidence is imperfect. And and I think um, it ties in a, a little bit to, to AI, and I think we'll come back and discuss some of the specific things. But I just wanted to start off and ask you a simple question, which is, 
uh, about the randomized controlled trial, and 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 it it's a leading question, but it's it's a simple one, which is can we or should we, as a world of healthcare and medicine, learn how to evolve beyond the RCT now? It's a very important question you're bringing up, Ethan. Uh, I respect randomized trials, but I also recognize severe limitations that they have. Uh, they're contrived. They uh, typically um, are not representative of the real world. Uh, and so they have warts in them, no matter how well and rigorous and large they are. And in many respects, there are other ways to provide evidence that are complementary or even at sometimes uh, as good or better. So I think we have to look at every piece of evidence uh, in making decisions and not categorically rule out something just because it isn't randomized. I mean, that may be a preferred uh, route to say this is backing a decision, but oftentimes randomized trials can lead us um, uh, not necessarily astray, but a little bit uh, out of alignment to the patient that we're actually uh, discussing. The other issue that I believe is going to be the future is, you know, this ability for individualization and that randomized trials come up with this kind of average message. And even some of the most potent, successful therapies we have today are, are only affecting a small number of people out of every hundred so I, I hope we'll do better in the future by this deep phenotyping that is understanding the medical essence of each person. I, I'm optimistic that we won't rely on randomized trials as much. They're very expensive. They're, they take quite a bit of time. And uh, there are complementary ways, I think, to assemble important data sets. Can you think of some places where we might be able to begin to explore this a little bit? Well, I mean, we don't even know what normal blood pressure is. And here we have the American Heart, American College that declare all of a sudden one day that the guidelines change and they give tens of millions of more people high blood pressure diagnosis. So for me, evidence would be looking at a very large cross-section of people, diverse and uh, in their real world with frequent or even continuous blood pressures uh, and finding out what is, quote, normal, end quote, blood pressure. That's fundamental, and no one has done this. I think we're going to be able to do that sort of thing. As a cardiologist, Eric knows as well as anyone about the value of randomized controlled trials, RCTs. Cardiologists were at the forefront of using large RCTs to evaluate new therapies, whether they were medicines, devices, or procedures. But as we discussed, RCTs are not perfect, and they are not going to help us make decisions in all areas of medicine. There are two main reasons for this. The first is that many of the questions left to answer are not going to be answered with RCTs, either because of cost or impracticality or both. It will take too long and cost too much money and is therefore impractical to design a trial to look at the effect of two diets on heart attack rates, as an example. The second issue we touched on was how RCTs, by design, evaluate the effect of an intervention on populations of people and therefore look at average effects rather than individual effects. Consider a large trial randomizing 1,000 people to get drug A and 1,000 to get placebo. At the end of the trial period, say one year, scientists compare the rate of events, heart attacks, in the two groups, and the difference between the mean event rates, the average number of heart attacks in both groups, is what is reported 
and what is used to determine the success or failure of the trial. So while this is important, it does not really offer any information about whether any individual will benefit, aside from a probability. In the end, Eric said he was optimistic that we won't rely on randomized trials as much in the future. And we can not categorically rule out something just because it isn't randomized. And this is the perfect transition into asking Eric about nutrition, as this was one of the things he had touched on in deep medicine. And it was one of the things I was most excited to ask him about. So I guess the difficult part is how do we get from where we are today to where we, I think, all want to be? And how do we help guide a young physician who's just at a training, who's sitting in front of a patient, who's asking that, that young doctor, what, what do I do for this? How do I treat this? How do, how do we give that person the comfort to be able to help guide their patient? Yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, I think now the admission that you know we often don't know and we have no real strong backing And the shared decision is something, you know, I think is helpful when you have time. And that's obviously something we need to gain, which is more time with with patients. But I'm hoping that we'll start to see the changes uh, in this, that there will be uh, a far more emphasis on um, a true patient-centered approach. Uh, And that's also involving collection of data, multimodal data for each person, where that helps to provide the best, whether it's diagnosis or treatment or prevention, whatever. So in your book, you, you spent a chapter, a, a bit of a chapter talking about something that I care a lot about, which is nutrition. Um, and I, I'm going to kind of quote you. You talked about nutritional epidemiology and the perils of, of the nutritional epidemiology, which which are many. And you, you said there were four limitations. One was that these studies are based on subject self-report, and that that can be fraught with uh, a lot of error. It was difficult to determine cause and effect. There were no controls for most of them. And then the last one, which I think is important, is that the the studies were hopelessly confounded. And um, so coming back to this discussion about everybody has to eat something, and somebody walks into my office and says, you know, Dr. Weiss, What's a health? What's a heart healthy diet? What am I supposed to eat? How do we answer that question for people today? Well, first, I want to applaud you for being uh, so into nutrition because I don't think enough doctors are, no less cardiologists. So I think that's great, and I, I you know, I think that uh, I wish that was much more commonplace. And ultimately, we could use food instead of medications or at least as a better adjunct. But that's taken uh, the step that there is no singular diet for all people, and we have to accept that now that I think it's proven that each person to the exact same food and timing and amount will have, whether it's different glucoses or different triglycerides or whatever. So once we get to that point, um, and and also fess up that the studies that have been done to date are so shaky at best, I mean, one today was just published about how if you skip breakfast, you'll you'll more likely die. Well, <laughs> talk about lack of uh, cause and effect. It, this this fulfilled every one of those uh, holes, you know. But these these keep getting published, and uh, you know, you and I exchanged via Twitter about the eggs, and it, every week there's something, you know. 
So right now, the way we are as humans, we have to uh, accept that there are going to be diets that are more ideal than others. So a heart-healthy diet, who knows what that really is um, today? Um, there's it's so many confounding features. You know, used to be that avoiding dairy products was a good thing, a, a bad thing. Now it's a good thing. Who knows? Because you know, the, the the studies that have been published are, are so flawed. So we start by admitting what we don't know, which is basically everything. But then we're still left. We're still <laughs> left with. With the reality, which is, well, I got to put something in my mouth every day. So is there a role here for AI to help deconvolute this at all? And I, I'm, I'm I'm asking a legitimate question. Yeah, no, I think there is. And, and the reason for that is it, it's kind of the prototype of this multimodal data of taking in your activity, physical activity, your sleep, your stress level, everything you eat and drink, your gut microbiome, your genome your concurrent medical conditions, all this stuff. It's a lot of data. No human could handle all this. And then, you know, basically the outputs of once you get a, a handle on a couple of weeks of a person's what they take in, you can start to project what would be uh, better suited. Now, I know what foods, which I never knew before, of how I could avoid a glucose spike. I don't know if avoiding a glucose spike is so critical, but at least I know that, and I've replicated the predictions. Uh, is that the most palatable thing? No. I mean, it, but it's it's illuminating that we're making progress. Uh, over time, I, I do think we're going to get there. Now, a lot of people are gonna, not going to be interested in this. They're going to just eat ad lib. But some people might want to use their food uh, intake as a means to promote health. And I, I do think that's going to be possible. I think it's one of the biggest unmet need, areas of unmet need that I see as a physician. That is pe people coming into my office and asking me, what can I do to lose weight? And I think we're all familiar with what's happened in this country and the world over the past 25 years with the obesity ep epidemic. And we can argue forever and ever about why we got where we are, but we are here. And the reality is we don't have much to offer people. So I look at this as, look, it's not going to work for everyone, but if somebody comes in who's highly motivated and wants a solution, that, that at the very least we can do is offer them something. And uh, and so I, you know, it's part of the, my mission, I hope, is to be able to give people something that might work and understanding fully that it's not going to work for, for everybody. All right. No, I think that's great. I think in your book, you talked a little bit about the recommended diet of the 1970s and 80s and and i i grew up you know as the son of a cardiologist in that era in a home that was you couldn't find a, a globule of fat a molecule of fat anywhere in the house if you tried and and i think uh, you pointed out so nicely in the book that that some of the unintended consequences i don't know if you well i mean it's i i i did talk about this a little bit in the book but the idea that we were supposed to be on this very very low fat diet the ornish diet and influence, which was profound and adopted by, you know, American Heart, uh, by the Clintons while they were in the White House. I mean, it was the rage. And look what it did. It was an obesogenic diet in retrospect, although the person who advocated it will never accept that. Uh, and that was wrong in every way because there were no data to support it. But the fact that it was for everyone and you would go around in the grocery store and everything would say low fat no, no fat. I mean, it was just amazing. So we have been misled so many times. That was one. But, you know, the, the obesity and diabetes epidemic 
you can't finger just one thing. You know, it's, it, there's lots of different things that play in, but our, our ignorance about diet and going back to evidence, the lack thereof certainly has contributed. Eric believes in the concept of food as medicine, a concept that may be counterintuitive to many of us who trained in the modern system. People want options to help themselves, and that often means not getting a prescription for a medicine. And what is the one thing we all put in our mouths every day that could help or hurt our health? It's food. Yet, as Eric described, what we know about what's healthy, what's heart healthy, is based on very shaky evidence. And as he described, an entire nation, even an entire world, was led to believe that a diet that was low in fat was healthy, heart healthy. However, I'm a broken record in saying that nutrition is a zero-sum game. That means if you cut out one nutrient class, say fat, but you keep your total calorie intake the same, you will, by definition, increase your intake of another category, in this case carbohydrates, sugars, which is exactly what was recommended. And as Eric said, we cannot blame the entire diabetes and obesity epidemic on one thing, but we need to start by acknowledging that mistakes were made and we need to acknowledge what we know. And most importantly, we need to acknowledge what we don't know. Part of best known method is having the courage to admit when we are wrong, to admit when we don't know, and then to admit that we are using the best available evidence. So let's shift a little bit and talk about... uh about behavior. I think it fits in this conversation about life, lifestyle. I wonder what you think about the, the potential role for technology, be it, be it AI or machine learning or anything like that, uh, in helping people change their behavior. I think this is the hardest nut to crack of all. Uh, and the question now is, with all the behavioral science, behavioral economists into this, the nudges, the gamification, the incentives, the managed competition with your peer network. Will we get there? I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see. The only thing I, I note there is that uh, we're very big advocates of these polygenic risk scores for when there's actionable information like heart disease. And there was a really big Finnish study that soon will be published where they gave people their heart risk scores and the people in the highest risk really did change uh, their behavior over a two-year period. They stopped smoking in a high, high proportion. They lost weight. They started activity more. So maybe in some people, there will be uh, the positive feedback of how you're at risk and you take the uh, behavioral changes, lifestyle improvements that will mitigate some of that risk, if not most of it. So I'm hopeful that a combination of all these things will be uh, because certain people will respond to managed competition. Some will like the incentives. Some will like the fun part. If we start to get all these going in high gear, maybe we can uh, override this defeatist attitude because out there is the pervasive sense, uh, people don't change. You can't change behavior. Maybe you could change it for a few months. Then they'll just go back to their old ways. I ha- I hate to think that because I like to be a lot more optimistic. I, I share your optimism. And I, I, there are two examples I like to point to. One is that no one is born wanting to brush their teeth. It's a behavior change that we all engineer as parents. And, and the other example is what's happened in Silicon Valley in the past you know, 15 years. And many of us, if not most of us now, and how we were pretty much systematically engineered to be become addicted to this this 
you know, world of stuff that we take in, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or all this stuff. So I, I guess I would ask it, let me frame it as a question. Do you think that they've demonstrated that changing people's behavior is not only possible, but relatively easy? I think there are a lot of good examples that you can achieve durable behavior uh, effects. Um, and now we have to just uh, deploy that in the health uh, specter more. Uh, there hasn't been enough evidence of that so far. Uh, so yeah, I like your example of uh, brushing your teeth. Uh, if we could do that uh, for taking care of your whole body more, that would be uh, the end goal. But you know, I, I, I think we're going to see that. I think there's too many really brilliant people, too many different strategies. And just like everything else, there's probably not, you know, this one strategy that's going to work across the board. But I, I'm pretty sure over time, people a decade from now will not be saying you can't change behavior. Uh, I've learned one thing, that it always takes longer than it ought to. But eventually, uh, I think we'll get there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I wonder if maybe part of the problem is that we are uh, not giving people the information that they need to be able to make those kinds of changes. I wonder if we're just not giving the right kind of feedback. Yeah, no, I do think you're right. I, I think that in, in two different categories, one, that we don't have the information and and isn't certainly the feedback loop isn't established. The other is that with respect to these subconscious nudges, we haven't been doing that. And so that these two routes, the overt uh data and information and then the the ones that are at this more subliminal level we need to really start working on that i know you're passionate about the handheld ultrasound are there other um wearables or other portable handheld technology kind of things that you're excited about that maybe get at this that will give people more information you talked about uh ambulatory blood pressure monitoring are there other things that that you're excited about well i think uh, if we ever, if we had, you know, really inexpensive glucose sensor that people could use for a couple of weeks, you know, for a few dollars, and it was accurate, and and like now you are now factory calibrated, so no finger stick. I think that would be helpful for people to learn more about how their body metabolizes food. Um, I am big keen, very keen on the smartphone. Uh, ultrasound because I think it's in, remarkably powerful and people don't use it for for poorer reasons. Uh, and I think that one eventually will be a device that will sit in the family. So there'll be a probe. It's really going to be cheap eventually. And it will use AI to tell you how to get the image. Uh, first, of course, today you could Google and find out how you can image your gallbladder or your kidney. It's already there. But this one will will talk to you and say, move to the left, move up an, an inch. And then it will tell you the image. Uh, so that one, I think, is is it going to eventually get to consumers? And, you know, why would we do a, a study uh, like a mammogram screening when you can, women can do this themselves at some point? Uh, otherwise, you know, I think people... We'll, we're already seeing AI for urinary tract infection, for uh, ear infection, for uh, heart rhythm detection. I, I think a lot of the routine things are going to be self-diagnosed at, at accurate levels, uh, and that's going to be a, a really important step to decompress the burden among physicians and clinicians in general. So do you think it'll help physicians, or do you think it might end up 
hurt him. Either no, I think I think it'll help him. I mean, we have to get the rigorous proof. I, I don't, you know, underestimate how important that is. But the point is that today there is not enough time between doctors and patients. And how are we going to get that back? Because that's that's the secret. It isn't why people went into medicine. They want it, they want to help. They want to care for other people. But what they can't when they have X number of minutes, single digits, and they're trying to assimilate information, they're trying to type in a keyboard. I mean, everything's going against them. They're trying to make a diagnosis where it's not possible to think. So we have to get that back. And I do think that getting uh, offloading a lot of this to the patients who are willing to take on more charge and to the outsourcing of machines to take on so many of the tasks that we will get there, that we can, at least if we stand up and become activists, we can get care uh, reestablished. So I think it's a perfect transition. I think there, to me, that's a great example of, of a, like everything else, there being two sides. So I remember as a third year student during my surgery rotation, I spent a large part, if not most of my time running around the halls of Johns Hopkins hospital, looking for physical x-rays because they'd end up somewhere getting lost and we'd have to have them for the surgery for the next day. Right. I remember that too. Obviously, that those days are long gone, right? We You could just have to find a computer and log in. And so I think, you know, residents and medical students are not spending as much time running around the hospital looking for x-rays, but they're, they're all now spending that time, that found time in front of a computer monitor. So I think that's an example to me of sort of one of the trade-offs. I, I agree with you 100% about needing more time, but how do we use that time more effectively? Well, if we had it, I think uh, there would be a whole different look as there is today with respect to patients. It would be back like when I was in med school or before, which is listening to the story. That's something that will never be digitized. It'll never be AI'd. That is the ability to listen to that person's life story to get the context. Oftentimes, they're even telling you the diagnosis. But the point is that we don't do that. We interrupt patients. They don't even have a chance to tell any story. And we're not even looking at them today. So how about reestablishing eye contact? That would be a good start. How about doing a really good exam? That would be nice. So if we went back to the basics here uh, of really engaging the presence as uh, my uh, hero, a medical humanist, Abraham Verghese, uh, likes to say presence. I mean, there's a whole uh, program at Stanford on that. So we want to get that back. I, I want to push for that. I think we all can work on that because if we do that, then medicine has a chance. And we will, just by doing that, not only endear people again, they'll know that there's the trust, that the care, the empathy, but we'll also get rid of a lot of errors uh, we'll upgrade medicine. So if we had the gift of time, it, it, to me, that's the dream. I, I want to come. I had a feeling we were going to talk about this. So I brought a couple of things with me. So I'm going to read a couple of these to you, and then we'll come back. I want to talk about what this topic again, because it's important to me. So this is a lecture that Philip Tumulty gave to third-year medical students at Hopkins in 1970. So mm. Philip Tumulty was a doctor's doctor. He was one of these original sort of great internists and he gave a lecture to the third-year students before they started their clinical rotations in, in 1970. And, I, and it's amazing to me that he. this is now almost 50 years ago. 
And he said, many patients miss and resent their inability to communicate with their physician in a meaningful manner. No wonder the resentment. We clinicians are better educated, more scientific than ever, but we have a, we have a great failing. We sometimes do not communicate effectively with our patients or their families. Some of us do not provide the time or make the effort. Others simply do not know how to talk to sick persons. If this seems exaggerated, it might be recalled that in the entire Marburg building at Johns Hopkins, there is but one small room suitable for serious family conferences. The general daily practice, therefore, is to discuss critical and frequently shocking issues with relatives while standing in the noisy halls, dodging food trucks and litters. Critical information and advice is given to sick persons and their families buffet-style, standing up. He went on to say, therefore, he's talking about the young physician, therefore he has to learn to talk to his patients. Even more important, like to talk to his patients. Mm -hmm. It's his greatest asset as a clinician, like no one else. He has the opportunity to listen to the laughter and to the cries. This, as I see it, is the vocation to which you've been called. And then he said, understand what it is and what it requires from you with gleaming clarity. From now on, you are engaged in the service of the sick. With the knowledge that you are acquiring, acquiring as a scientist, with your clinical art developed through experience, and with the warmth of your own spirit and the strength of your own character, with laying of your hand and in response to your words, you can make the sick better and fill the dying with peace. These are great powers. Always deserve them. Mm. Who gives that talk today? You don't hear it very much, but it's it's the real deal. I, I mean, mean it's, he, it's so true, every word of that. I wonder, uh, because we're in this world now of RVUs and metrics and all these things that we all spend our time dealing with, I, w- I wonder where who who's going to lead this mission, critical mission, to bring humanism back in, in, into medicine. Right. Well, I don't know if it would have been possible if we didn't have the ability with technology to outsource to machines and uh, give more patient responsibility in charge. So that's the good part, is that we have a means to that end. Whether it will be used that way, Instead of the default mode, which is let's just make doctors see more patients and radiologists read more scans and, and everybody do more stuff so we can have more burnout, so we can have more depression and, and even more suicide. That's what will happen if we don't stand up. And so I'm hoping to ignite uh, a lot of uh, activism uh, among the medical community to uh, achieve this goal, to get what you just Cited with Phil Tumulty and all the other wise physicians and medical folks uh, from yesteryear to get get this back. I, I do think it's attainable. I think that a lot of people believe that technology is depersonalizing. It can't possibly ever uh, enhance humanity, but I strongly and vehemently disagree with that principle. Uh, I've seen it in my own connection with patients. And I am certain that this is a time that could have uh, uh, could be represent a turning point that we may not see again. So you know, we got to grab it now. It's early in the AI world, but uh, you can. It's like the little boy on the street. You can kind of know where this is headed. And if we don't gear up now, which we're not doing in the U.S., they're doing it much more in the U.K. and China and other parts of the world, but. Uh, we've got to get with it. So I, I want to ask you 
obviously time is so critical, necessary, but probably not sufficient. So how are people approaching designing systems with, with the goal of not just increasing time, but of actually bringing some of these meaningful interactions back? Or do you see this in young entrepreneurs and people out there developing new technologies? Do you see people thinking about not just giving people more time? Because as you said, that time may end up getting eaten up using other things. Are people thinking about not just improving the time, but but giving giving people a chance to be doctors again? Uh, I think they're inseparable. That is, the only way this will happen, it isn't so much the innovators that are going to drive it. But once you have the time, the question is, um, what do you do with it? And that today is unfortunately... Um, decided by administrators, the people that make up either clinic uh, uh, schedules or they make up uh, the expectations for various uh, clinicians, whether it's nurses, physicians, whatever, to do in their daily routine. So those are the people. They need to be trained even more than the algorithm, uh, you know, the computers, because they need to know that for every minute, that is gained by using speech instead of keyboards or by having an image interpreted or data collected and, and processed for every minute that goes turning inward, going back to patients so that the visits get double in length rather than get halved and, and, and so on. So I don't think this is a, in the domain of uh, the startups and the tech titans. And I think it's really going to be from inside the medical community uh, and we'll have to see who takes leadership, who is the one out there that starts the campaign about we have brought back the care in healthcare. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I want to believe you. I just worry that we we're stuck on this. Everyone wants to measure something, and and it is a business. We're never going to get away from the fact that we're all part of this huge multi-trillion dollar business. And so, I guess the question is, what do you sell if you're sitting? in the office of a hospital administrator, how, how do you sell it to them that well, this think, is going to be good for their business? I think the way it'll ultimately go is the patients will sell it. They know if a doctor is actually present, is actually doing an exam, is listening. And when the word gets out, as so many things are, are word of mouth still in this era of digital social media, in fact, that word of mouth, of course, can spread that way. But I think in a community where there are doctors that have basically re-engaged and have actually um, gotten back to their humanistic desires, inclinations, I, I think that's going to be uh, the driver. You know, today it's like, do you have a good parking situation? Do you have a friendly receptionist? It gets like Yelp ratings. Tomorrow it'll be uh, you know that doctor's there at that place. They they really they they actually listened to me. They gave me a lot of time. They communicated. They care about me. They texted me when I was done about or I had the procedure. They they want to know if I'm okay. We don't see that much anymore. Gosh, I hope you're right. I really do hope you're right. I I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to try and be optimistic. It's not in my nature. I just want to finish with a couple of quick like uh, simple questions. So biggest problem in healthcare. The biggest problem to me uh, is it's admixed between lack of time, lack of thinking, lots of errors, 
and and bad medicine. It's all in, it's all I think lumped together, um, and I think that is just ripe for for fixing. And and would you say then it's the biggest opportunity? Yes, I, surely it's the greatest unmet need to to fix this, uh, and I think I think it's doable. Uh, I wasn't if you'd asked me if a couple of years ago I would have said this is horrendous. I don't know how we'll get out of this, but at least now I can I can see a way through. Whether we'll be able to execute and and meet that uh, opportunity, that remains to be seen. I get asked every once in a while from a young kid who wants to think about a career in medicine, what what kinds of things they should study as a high school or college mm-hmm. student. Curious mm-hmm. what what your list looks like. Well, the list now includes diverse fields of genomics. I think you know everyone ideally would want to learn as much as possible, if possible, you know, their own sequence and learning bioinformatics. It includes uh, AI, uh, uh, understanding at least the, the basics of uh, the subtypes and, and the nuances. It includes um, all this about sensors and digital aspects and being tele-doctors because there'll be a lot of that in the future as well. So I think these t- these new... Uh, fields, you know, computer science is obviously a really uh, great one that includes data science and related fields. All these are going to play a really big role in the future. So getting some uh, input, getting some uh, exposure to them, not necessarily having to be experts, I think it's going to be vital. And, and given the conversation we just had, what about some of the liberal arts? Do you think people should spend time yeah. studying philosophy or music or art or literature? Well, I love that stuff. And, uh, of course, I think that'd be great. Um, you know, again, going back to Abraham Verghese, uh, he likes to take his med students to uh, an art gallery and have them describe in detail everything they've seen. And he feels, and I agree, that makes you a better doctor. So being astute observers will be facilitated by uh, diverse exposure, whether it's poetry or art or music or whatever. So being not just rounded, but uh, just by having that ability to take things in. I mean, you know, last night I was watching this Our Planet documentary. Uh, Unbelievable. And, you know, it's nothing about medicine. It's about our planet, and it's just mind-blowing. And I have to think that the more of that that enriches us, the more it just, in general, motivates us to, to do good and, and, and help people. It probably helps you to stay pretty grounded sitting here looking out over that view. All right, last Very one, lucky. You are. We all, we're all incredibly lucky, and I think that we'd all be wise to remember that uh, on a regular basis, because I think sometimes we think about what we don't have as opposed to what we actually do have. So last yeah. one is, uh, I know you interact with a lot of different people at various stages of their, of their career, but you, you are one of the leaders in, in the world of technology and the intersection of technology and medicine, healthcare, and science. I'm wondering if you could give some generic advice to a young entrepreneur who wants to, to take on healthcare, which is like the third rail. Uh, <laughs> you have any advice for, for young people who might want to get into this? Yeah, no, I think the, the main advice is uh, to hook up with uh, astute uh, people in the clinical domain, because otherwise you might be 
innovating something where there is no use or need. So you want to do this. I've seen too many things that have been developed that are what I would even consider ingenious, but will go nowhere. So you really want to identify a partner, if you will, or you know, a strong collaborator, uh, and understand both worlds: the the innovation per se, but also um, is this going to really have a measurable uh, impact? Is this going to be uh, something that the world needs? And then you get those together, and you get a pretty good recipe. Amazing. Well, listen, I, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's been fun to come down and chat with you. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, Ethan, really. We'll, we'll probably have, fun. To, have to do it again. <laughs> All right, Eric, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I struggle between being an optimist and a pessimist. More specifically, I struggle with whether I'm optimistic about the role technology can play in our society versus pessimism over its potential harms. What impressed me so much about Eric was his unyielding sense of optimism. He seems to think that technology can be a force for good by giving us the time to be more present, more human. And while I think we need to consider and acknowledge the risks future technologies might bring us, we also must embrace the potential for positive changes. Eric has always kept his eye on the future and has thought hard about what would or will be important, not just tomorrow, but 5, 10, 50 years in the future. If I were to summarize his career in one sentence, it was that he was always able to identify next-generation, leading-edge technologies. And he's done this with a tremendous sense of optimism, and most importantly, he's done so while maintaining an incredibly strong sense of humanism. This is Best Known Method. <laughs>